Recovery Sort Of is a podcast where we discuss recovery topics from the perspective of people living in long-term recovery. This podcast does not intend to represent the views of any particular group, organization, or fellowship. The attitudes expressed are solely the opinion of its contributors. Be advised, there may be strong language or topics of an adult nature. Welcome back. It's Recovery Sort Of. I am Jason, and it's quite possible I could be considered a sexaholic. And I'm Billy. I'm a person in long-term recovery. I'm Jenny. I'm also a person in long-term recovery. And today we have Rick with us. Hi, Rick. Hi, I am Rick, and I am a sexaholic along with a recovering alcoholic and workaholic. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, I got a few of those holics myself, <laughs> yeah. that's for sure. Uh, so, yeah, we're, we're here to explore the program of Sexaholics Anonymous. That is why we have Rick. Uh, before I go blabbering and getting into anything i think we should just let rick tell us a, a good five to eight minute version of his lifetime story of why he's here to talk about this all right um as i said i'm a recovering alcoholic and a sexaholic um alcohol was in my family i actually learned to walk to to beer cans thrown on the beach <laughs> and that was a, a folklore in my family for years but the biggest problem was then. I was uh, 16 when I found my dad's eight millimeter movies that were in black and white, you know, porn movies, stag flicks, I think they used to call them. And uh, I can remember uh, showing them on my basement. You know, I found them. It was kind of buried in the back. And when nobody was home, I would go down and put one on and sit on the concrete floor showing it against a wall you know it was like this you know now i should say it it sounds like what an incredibly crazy idea but that was where i started and when i was 18 then my dad gave me playboy so i had a you know subscription to playboy so magazines started getting in it and it was just the go-to area you know i had that you know that feeling that I wasn't enough so that, uh, you know, here I could be the master of my own fate, especially with women, women, uh, you know, I was kind of shy. So, you know, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't the big stud that I saw everybody else think they were. And so, you know, but I could be the master of my own universe with pornography or the, on the movies. And so it just kept going. And then, of course, I got married after grad school. So I thought, oh, the cure. Now I don't need any of that because, you know, I can have 24, as some people in the program will say, 24 uh, sex. And, you know, of course, that doesn't happen. And it, that lasted through the two-week honeymoon into the next week. When my dad and my mom got separated after many years of marriage, and of course, you know, that upset me. So what was I back to? Masturbation and porn. And on and off for, the, for many, many years, it turned to be pornography, alcohol, got into strip clubs, and I was, I was, my work was very important. I became a workaholic and it just became a, a, a big mix. Not work really hard. Well, I deserve a break. You know, what does break mean? Well, strip club. Well, to be friendly, I got to have plenty of alcohol. And it just, you know, and, and the cycle just got worse and worse. And until 2007, basically my wife had had enough. She had caught my porn collection and instead of thinking at great addict thinking instead of thinking i had a problem you know my problem was i just got to hide it better you know great thinking and uh, but then eventually she caught it and had enough after 30 we'd been married 36 37 years uh, and she kicked me out of the house and we were separated for about six weeks when one Sunday, my uh, daughters were all three of them were in town and said, hey, dad, when mom's at church, why don't you come visit us? 
Well, that was the setup for an intervention. Um, and it was a really powerful experience. You know, if you've ever seen one, you know, where they read the letters, I was in tears literally uh, most of the time. And when the, the interventionist, who is now one of our close friends, uh, asked, are you ready to get recovery? They had already said they thought they'd have to do at least two or three rounds. And I said, yes. Hmm. And that afternoon, I was on a plane to Wickenburg, Arizona for a, a five-week program that was life-changing. And my last drink was actually uh, July 7th of 2007. Ooh, congratulations. Yeah. Congratulations. So, and then, uh, and then when I got there, I thought, well, alcohol is my primary. You know, I knew sex was in there. They said, oh, no, you're a sex addict first. Hmm. Alcohol is your secondary. And so I did the program for uh, sex addiction. And as soon as I got back, my wife did let me back in the house. It was challenging, but it it was we can make it work. And I found uh, Sexaholics Anonymous. Some people recommended some meetings to me, and I started going and been going ever since. How challenging was it to find a meeting when you got back to your home? Uh, actually, because we were also in a recovered church recovery ministry there were two or three guys that were already mm. visiting so i had plenty of resources mm. plus a member of the church actually or one of the pastors was in sa and he recommended a couple of meetings so i had plenty of sources which was very helpful I think one of the first things you said that stood out to me was when you were talking about finding those films and kind of like the the wacky or not ideal method in which you set them up to try to be able to you know watch them and i was thinking back to i think my generation we had like the early cable tv channels that were scrambled and like every so often you thought you peaked something and it was like just the, you know that i hate to call it addict mentality but that idea that like we need this so bad we will you know accept these minor scraps off the table just to have something Oh, yeah, um, I remember. I've heard people talk. Right. I kind of remember a little bit of it, uh, you know, or the the ones where they're not quite hardcore, oh, but right, they're, right, right. Yeah. you know, softcore. Right. And, you know, how can I watch those? Mm. Yeah, yeah, like the HBO, they would have the late night, like, mm -hmm. wasn't quite, you know, porn, but kind of yeah. very uh, suggestive. Very titillating, <laughs> as they yeah. would say. Uh, another thing that stood out, and I imagine this makes it, it, it's probably getting better and changing in our world now, but just especially hearing it come from, you know, you talking about coming of age at 18, I would imagine it's really tricky in our society to be able to recognize sex addiction because we kind of champion this idea that like part of coming of age for boys is sort of like women and nudity and sex and all these things. It's like, oh, you're finally ready, bud. Here's your Playboy subscription mm -hmm. or you know, hey, let's go to the strip club because you turned 18 or let's go out for a beer because you turned 21. Like we sort of champion some of these ideas. And I would imagine when you're coming of age and you're just confused by life and trying to figure it out, there's probably a lot of mixed messages about am I unhealthy or am I just like all these other guys that I hear talking? Well, you have that. But the problem is also uh, cell phones. Yeah. I did some research. The average age a boy finds uh, hardcore pornography. Guess? Eight. Six. Seven. Wow. Seven. I mean, I, wow. I, you know, at 16, I had a hard enough time processing it. Right. What's a seven-year-old do with, I mean, not, not porn that the, the, in my day it was it <laughs> right, wasn't right, right. I mean, now it is really really explicit mm -hmm. and what is a seven-year-old how does he process it right but you know and then the male culture you know buck up be mm -hmm. a man being a man is being with women right. you know all of that yeah no absolutely and and as you say that like i have an eight-year-old little adorable boy at my house and like picturing him 
stumbling across some of the things that we know exist that are out there is just like yeah that's that's scary and sad at the same time um you also mentioned this idea that i don't think we talk about a lot or at least i haven't heard much about in in the 12-step groups that i've gone to but kind of like this one addiction almost helping and reinforcing another right because you you had a hard day with your workaholic addiction right but then you were like well now i get to treat myself and then you say well i'm gonna treat myself by going to the strip club and blowing off some steam well but that's about talking to people so now i also need to involve the alcohol and it's it was really fascinating to hear and i would imagine if i was to probably explore my life from that lens there's probably also a lot of these ways the addictive pieces or the obsessions or the search for relief kind of overlap and reinforce themselves man that makes it really tricky to to get out because we, that old theory of like hey just stop one at a time it's too much to stop everything and yeah and that's one of the reasons the the rehab i went to uh the the interventionist picked because it dealt with multiple addictions mm-hmm. Be, the yeah that's that is an issue because in sa in a couple of the groups i'm in uh, especially I noticed that early on, probably 40 to 50 percent or more were recovering alcoholics. And some of them had 15, 20 years of sobriety in AA. And then I hear, you know, oh, I got I've been in the program two years and I got six months of sobriety. And I'm right. thinking, OK, they they got clean, you know, sober. Mm-hmm. But they just switched addictions. Right. And it just, you know, that I've heard it called the whack-a-mole, you know, <laughs> yeah. whack one and something else pops up. Mm-hmm. What do people in SA call your sobriety? They call it sobriety? Yep. Okay. Yeah, sexaholics get sobriety. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it, it, you know, uh, I've actually heard somebody said I've been, you know, clean. But, yeah, we call it sobriety, sober. I had heard another person uh, along my journey that really, really felt like it was powerful for them to have someone tell them that drugs weren't their quote unquote main addiction. It was actually sex addiction. And, And the way they described it for me, it's not that in the moment the drug addiction was probably more interruptive to their life or or more unmanageable, more destructive. But when they traced it back, the sex addiction came first. And they said it for a lot of people, that's true, right? We think of like porn or masturbation. You're talking seven when people are being exposed mm-hmm. to it. I'm thinking, you know, I don't know, 11, 12. That seems like the pretty typical stage of development. Even though it wasn't as destructive, it, it had its roots early. Like they were seeking that relief early. And then drugs just became kind of the next extension of that. Did you feel like hearing that was, I, I mean, I guess just in this sense that we just talked about you said that that allowed you to address it much sooner in your recovery which is beautiful do you think that's an important thing that maybe more of us need to hear this idea that maybe sex addiction is the i don't want to say the primary but like the precursor almost it could could be um certainly in in the program i've run into a lot of people who were sexually abused Mm. and sex became a big deal and, you know, they used it, but then they had alcohol or drugs also to medicate those feelings. And, yes, they saw that the alcohol and drugs were clearly a problem, but sex addiction probably was their base addiction. Mm. And part of the problem, I think, is, you know, an alcoholic, most of them, pretty much everybody in the family and, and your friends know it. Right. Same way drugs, you know, you come in glassy eyed and red eyed, pretty much they know you got a problem, but you can watch porn for eight hours. How's anybody going to know? Right. right. So it's easier hidden. Mm. And, you know, we don't. And again, we get clean from sobriety. You know, if I come go to people that I meet and say, Oh, I've, I've been sober 15 and a half years, you know, from alcohol. Oh man, great job. Same way with, you know, drugs and drag right. addicts. I've had heard, you know, they get praised. Most everybody gets praised. Sex addiction. Sadly, p- 
people will look at you. They, you know, and actually, I've seen people almost take a step back. They don't want to get, mm-hmm. you know, what you've got. Mm-hmm. Sadly, and and, and they're, they're loving people. It just has a very negative connotation. It's so fascinating because my my initial um, entrance into recovery was through the twelve step program of Narcotics Anonymous specifically. And I remember going there early on and thinking, we are like a bunch of IV using drug addicts. We are like the scum of the earth in this basement. This is as low as it gets, right? (laughs) And then over some years, feeling more comfortable with it. We were just people, whatever. It was fine. And then um, with like 10 years, seeking some therapy at one point and the therapist recommending I go to a a sex addiction program, um, which ended up being I I explored SAA, uh, Mm -hmm. Sex Addicts Anonymous, and then Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous. Uh, And I never made it around to Sexaholics Anonymous. I always wanted to, but I, I think there was a piece of it that bothered me, which we'll probably get into. Um, but the fascinating part was the only real meeting near me was on a Friday night in the same building that an NA meeting was going on at. And when I went to drive there, I thought, oh, my God, I can't let these NA people see me going into this other meeting. (laughs) And and there's this connotation, right? Sex addict. The initially thing that comes to my mind, even as an open minded guy, is pervert, um, pedophile, plays with children. And so, like, it's just so hard to break that stigma because I think that's the first place people's minds go. And it's. I got to be honest, I would imagine in in your role in your life now, that might even be more looked at that way. That's scary. Um, It can be. And and the words you just used, I did. We did the recovery ministry I had at church. I actually had the group. And when we talked about sex addiction and we did a a group teaching a couple of weeks, I asked them, when I said those words, what came to mind? And all three of those were oh, yeah. what some of the first that came out. Yeah. And that's the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, I went, the rehab I was at, it was shocking to me it, it, that, oh, the alcoholics, man, oh, they were on top. The codependents <laughs> were right there. Drug addicts, well, you're, you're kind of right. maybe second class. But you sex addicts, you you are in the basement. Yes. And, yeah. you know, I said, wait a minute. We all have addictions. Right. How can there be this pecking order? But there was. Yeah. Even there. Right. Yeah. So right. how does general society, what are they going to think? Right. Yeah, that's a, it's an interesting concept that we, we have so much stigma and hangups around this idea of sex addiction. And, and don't get me wrong. The worst ugliest most tragic instances yeah they they may look like those labels right but i would say at least from my experience 90 percent of it looks like i watch too much porn and it's making my life unmanageable in some way it's hurting my wife i'm masturbating and it takes away from my sex life and my marriage like it was i guess pretty typical or normal sounding things most of the time which broke my heart for the fact that we all felt so shameful about going and seeking help like we're trying to get better and we still felt shameful going absolutely i mean it's it's scary i've been reading you know people in their 20s need you know help right to be able to have relations with their wife Mm -hmm. i mean that's pretty scary right i mean that's telling you something's you know not not normal Right, right. And yeah, I mean, that's the sad part. And and I can't tell you how many times talking with newcomers, you know, what what uh, what the issue is. Well, I, I, you know, I watch a little bit of porn and then, you know, I get up at two, you know, I get up and my wife and I go to bed at 11. I get up at 12. I'm only going to watch 10 minutes. <laughs> Next thing I know, it's 430 and I got to get up at six. Right. And yeah, does that interfere with your life? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And you know, and 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 you know, the other parts of it. I mean, you got massage parlors and in, in that area, you know, affairs. But pornography has been been the biggest one, right? Um, Pat Carnes, who I've oh. read a lot of. If you're, you know, he's yeah. a lot of people call him the guru of sex addiction. Said. The internet and internet porn was the crack cocaine of sex addiction. 
Yeah, he's uh, he's actually the gentleman that wrote the gentle path through the twelve steps, which is which a, he he admits is the brutal path. <laughs> right, I've right. heard it out of his own mouth, so I, I'm not. I believe it. I believe yeah. it. But it's a very thorough book. I, I enjoyed Absolutely. working through it. Yeah. So with your was your family aware of your issues around your sex addiction when they did your intervention? And were you aware that that was a big issue for you before? Your I knew, uh, yes, they, my wife, certainly. And, uh, and my daughter and my youngest daughter kind of caught me one time. Mm. So, I mean, she she didn't see me, but I think she suspected what was going on. Right. Um, the older daughters weren't in the house at this point but i think they knew um they knew there was there was issues with alcohol you know the whole thing right what did i know i actually thought probably alcohol was more more of an issue that you know and that's you know that denial that addicts are so famous for but um i didn't see it as interrupt as as disruptive as the alcohol because alcohol took me out of being present Mm -hmm. sex addiction it does the same thing but i didn't recognize it as much so now at that point i probably would you know as i said when i went got to the rehab i thought alcohol was my primary do you think that the the intervention uh, maybe i should ask this first your wife was not at the intervention yeah she was there she was there too oh yeah well when i walked in she was there that's when i knew Something gotcha. was up. Do you think that your your daughters being involved made it a greater chance of success? Like, did that really sell it to you? Um, actually, and and two of them were married, so they were sons in law. Wow. Um, and actually, the, my uh one son in law was the first. He read the first letter, and his dad had died of alcoholism. Oh, wow. So he, you know, he, that set the tone. I was already crying. Right. And yeah, the pain that I heard from my daughters and my wife. Yeah. I mean, if you've ever seen those, I mean, you know, and people affected, it it does affect you. I mean, it, it was life changing. It was the toughest day of my life Mm. and yet the best day of my life. That's awesome. So to to get into a little bit of the program, I think, which is what we hope to do here is yep. to let people know what is there and what it can help with and how it can do it. Um, going back to just my little bit of experience, I, I went to SAA first. It was very focused on just the sex addiction piece of it, which, you know, is all I knew at the time, honestly. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was mostly male. So it felt, at least for me, who part of my interaction was with other women. So that felt really safe for me that it was mostly male. Um, and I ended up choosing that more as my home base because it just it I guess I liked at that time the idea that you and your sponsor and your network kind of come up with what your trouble behaviors are as opposed to a hard line like this is what your problem is. Stop doing that. Um, and eventually I went to to SLAA and uh, I think at that time. I liked the idea more because there is a little bit of that love addiction for me, like that, please accept me, please make me feel like enough kind of part. But it it felt kind of dangerous because there was um, more women in their population, I guess. And and that didn't feel quite as safe for me with what I was working on. Um, And so I had considered going to SA at one point. And what I had heard, and you can clarify if any of this is true or not, was that generally SA or Sexaholics Anonymous was more geared towards married men. Um, And that the idea was any sex outside of that marital uh, agreement was wrong. And that included, you know, masturbation. And and I wasn't so sure about that, but maybe you can just talk about, is that true? Yes. Our definition is basically no sex with self or anyone else other than the spouse and the spouse is considered 
a, a female, ma- you know, a, a relationships male and female. Okay. Um, and yes, I've heard that. I am familiar with SAA at the rehab. I actually did the green, red, or green, yellow, and red circles, mm-hmm. and that has some some advantages. That was a a good tool to know what are good, safe, uh, and enriching uh, right. things I need to do. The reason SA has been so successful is that it has such a firm bottom. Mm-hmm. Now, people will say, well, it's, you know, the definition isn't so uh, welcoming. Yes, I get that. And the founder, Roy K., wrote it. That's how the program has been. I'm sure there have been discussions at the intergroup and the higher levels, but people look at it and i've heard people come in and some struggle with same-sex attraction Mm -hmm. said i need that firm and definitive bottom when when you say the way it's written isn't welcoming um i mean i think there's definitely a part of it doesn't seem welcoming to like the lgbtq community but are you also referring to and you described this weird. So when I heard it before, it was just like actual legal marriage. But the way you described it made it sound like maybe there was some space for girlfriends, fiancés, boyfriends. That's always been a little bit, I, I'd say, open-ended. Okay. Everybody's welcome. Don't get me wrong. Right. I mean, we have, you know, you can come in and there have been people that were in, you know, same-sex marriages. And they realized that they were out of control and yet they needed that firm bottom for the time being. Right. Um, so we're, you know, nobody's going to say, oh, you can't come in. Right. So I want to make, you know, it's, it's, it is welcoming. It's just that when I say that is that, yes, there are people that, you know, I've had conversations with when we talk about it is can't we change it? Well, that you know that's up to the fellowship over the you know in the future i don't know i suspect it probably will stay the way it is right and if you're if you're not comfortable there is saa right i saw that there's actually five sex addiction programs oh what are the other two so there is sa saa sla oh (laughs) (laughs) now we want the two more yeah Yeah, okay let me go back to the internet but um so when you came out of rehab, did you know you wanted SA? You you knew you were headed for that program, or was it just convenient because that's what was available? Um, actually, I had done uh, some of the literature and the meetings we did used SLAA literature. Mm-hmm. I had the Green Book, which is SAA. Uh, I was familiar with SA, and we had talked about it. I had not been able to go to a meeting because you couldn't really leave campus. Uh, so, um, when I got involved and talked to people here, there were more essay meetings and people were very, they said, it's a great program. So I went to my first meeting and it's actually become my home group. You know, we we don't really call it quite the same as, as AA, but we do, I call it that. And it's the group I still, 15 plus years later, uh, you know, if I'm in town, I'm at the meeting. And, uh, you know, I just found that it was, so the people were welcoming and affirming and it was, and they were supportive. It, so I found, you know, it, I, you know, God led me there, I'm sure. Right. It was it was funny. So when I I was attending SAA, there was probably more people from AA or affiliated with AA than there was from NA. But I did have the thought reading through that the SAA literature. I was like, I wonder if the people that go to NA come here for sex addiction help. And if the people that go to AA all go to sexaholics just because we like the terminology better, because it did it did feel like SAA's literature kind of felt like it had read similar to na's literature and then i was like oh sexaholic i'm like rick just chose it because he liked the holics that's, that's why he picked that one <laughs> i mean it, hey the the you know money um are the same but sa the white book which is what was roy k the founder wrote 
you know, it reads a awful lot like AA literature. Yeah. Right. Um, oh, go ahead. Jen. Oh, so, um, you were telling me, we were talking before the show, what it's like when you get a newcomer, um, all are welcome, but it sounds like there's a bit of a vetting process. Can you talk about that? Oh, when, when, the, you know, I actually help out on our hotline, the Baltimore area intergroup hotline, um, because sex addiction has such a shame, uh, characteristics and people, you know, having negative opinions. Occasionally you get people that are curious mm. and all SA meetings, uh, in our area and probably most of the country are what's called closed, closed. meetings. Yeah. Only those desiring the desire to be sexually sober. Uh, and there's a reason because, you know, we don't want people just coming in curious. Right. It, it's just very disruptive and probably would take away from the healing that would happen in the meeting. So unlike AA, where, you know, pretty much anybody's welcome, um, SA, you know, they are closed meetings. So we will ask people, newcomers, why do you think you have a problem? Mm -hmm. And, you know, and very few uh, will say, oh, I'm just curious. Right. And but occasionally you'll you'll sense that, hey, you know, there there is some curiosity and and, you know, we maybe say, hey, here, you know, why don't you look at another fellowship where the meetings aren't closed? Right. That's that's really interesting. I feel like that's a factor that maybe the, the more typical or traditional 12 step programs don't have to really deal with. It's like an extra step that uh, I wouldn't consider, but I, I appreciate that it's being done because yeah, that there is some really sensitive information that can be shared there or, or not shared if there's, you know, investigative oh, journalists in the back row. Oh, or, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. We, you people. know, I can't tell you how many times in the 15 years that I've been in a meeting and a guy, and I've gotten to know him, and all of a sudden, he'll say something. He said, I thought I'd take this to the grave mm -hmm. and share something um, that was so, you know, was, was, you know, he'd been carrying around. Right. And he shared it, and you can almost see the weight come off of him. I mean, they're almost different people um, because, you know, so they're, especially if they were sexually abused. Right. I mean, uh, you know, that's for for males, especially, uh, I think, you know, oh, I'm I'm supposed to buck up and handle all of this. And, you know, so I'm not going to share that with anybody. Right. Right. Is it mostly male? In your uh, yeah. S.A. The majority of the meetings are almost 100 uh, percent. We do have some uh, women in S.A. Um, they've been reaching out. Um, and again, I think it's, you know, if it's shameful for males, I think it's even probably worse for, for yeah. women Yeah, no, I uh, agree. to admit it. Now, the rehab I went to had a group that was strictly women and there were almost as many women as there were men in the, the weeks I was there. So mm. it's there. Right. It's just that, uh. You know, it's difficult and there aren't enough women to be able to have women's only meetings. And that's hopefully something that is changing. We're trying, we're been, you know, in, in the Baltimore area, we have been looking to try to create a women's only meeting. That's a weird thing to hope for. Like, oh, I hope there's more women. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, I know that they have the problem, so it's not like, right, right. Uh, you know, I hope that they get sex addiction. <laughs> right. I right. know they already exist. It just, hopefully, you know, they can start to get some help. Yeah, I found the other programs. Oh, that, what are they? Yeah, so it's, so Sex Addicts Anonymous, yeah. Sex and Love Addiction Anonymous, mm -hmm. Sexual Compulsives Anonymous. Mm. Oh, I've never heard of that. Sexaholics Anonymous. Sexual Recovery Anonymous. Oh, okay. So, yeah, I've never heard of those two. So there's five, five to pick from, five flavors. I wonder if, if those other two even have their own kind of distinct flavor or, or touch to them. Because that's what I noticed about the couple I went to. Like, SAA, uh, I heard that SA was like 100% male. And SAA was like, 
98.7% male. <laughs> you know, we'd have like a woman every so often and, and, uh, but then SLAA seemed very split. And in fact, they did have women's only meetings in Baltimore. Um, this was four or five years ago, last I checked, but yeah, it is. I wonder what those, what those other two are and if they're just, I've heard burgeoning. of them, but I don't know enough about them. So right. can't really speak to it. Okay. Oh, so does SA follow the traditional 12 step, 12 tradition model? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it, the only change from the, and the 12 steps is instead of alcohol, it's, I, yeah, I'm powerless over lust. Mm. Okay. Oh, is that what it says? In yeah. Step? That's, lust. that's <laughs> the, and, and Roy wrote about, you know, yes, sex addiction, you know, porn and all that. And when he, he wrote it, you know, internet porn hadn't come out. So it right. wasn't, but affairs and all that are up here, but underneath is the, is lust, which is that unnatural use of an, of something that was natural. Sex is, you know, hey, we are give, you know, born with the desire for sex, right? But we use it in a, in a very unnatural way, right? And that's how he kind of defines, and it's very lengthy, but that's a brief nutshell of it. Well, that's I'm always curious in the twelve step, twelve tradition model. So it's always how do they differentiate the first step? And then what about like the fifth tradition? Like in NA, that's the only requirement for membership is a desire to stop using. Do you know what they use for a fifth? Is it similar? Yeah, very. It's, uh, I can't remember the exact, it's this basically to stay sexually sober. Yeah. And I guess that gets more into the, what are the sort of qualifications for membership or for, you know, people coming like what, what specific criteria fit? you know, well into that program. Uh, yeah. I mean, basically if you're struggling with, you know, as I said, probably now 80%, 90% are struggling with internet porn. Mm. That's, you know, but they're still, you know, and, and a lot of them will have had a, you know, an affair or, uh, strip clubs or, um, massage parlors. But, uh, most of them recognize, you know, the internet porn's probably their their go to. So, just a you know, quick fact check: each group has but one primary purpose to carry its message to the sexaholic who still suffers. Which sounds like what Rick came up yeah. with. That was perfect. Um, yeah, I was I was going to ask Rick uh, right around that same time just to try to get into this idea. Like, does sexaholics anonymous pretty much follow with alcoholics anonymous with kind of the way they conceptualize what's going on um you know like this is a spiritual malady or a spiritual disease and that the treatment comes from the same place and that like i i love the way when you said that uh you know we all have this lust and that it's just kind of what i heard i know these weren't the words you used but like blown out of proportion because of the other things we're struggling with that feels like what uh, I learned about in the sixth step with my character defects, right? Like these are normal human traits, but because of the way I feel about myself and I interact with the world, I do them to an extent that doesn't feel typical or normal anymore. Um, so I, I guess I was just wondering, like is, is pretty much the entirety of the program very similar to the feel of AA and what they say the problem is and how we work on it? Oh, absolutely. I think so. I mean, I went to AA meetings for the first few years oh, okay. to because of, you know, I also knew I was a recovering alcoholic. Right. And yes, it, it, it all addiction is a spiritual disease. Mm. You know, I'm very convinced of that. Um, and being connected to a higher power, however you define it, uh, for me, it's God, um, is so important. And yes, character defects you know, are a big part of it. And those things that, uh, you know, you could say, you know, affected us from our youth, a lot of it, a family of origin, right. um, you know, those things that we don't like about ourselves, that we use sex, alcohol, drug, whatever, to medicate, mm -hmm. we need to be able to identify it. And we see that in SA, just like you see it in AA. Right. What right. I like about essay, though, uh, also is that that if I'm struggling that day and it's been a long time that, you know, that maybe a, a drink would be really nice 
uh, I can share it in a meeting. Whereas in an A meeting, if you don't talk about alcohol, you're going to probably hear about it. Unfortunately, <laughs> you know, you can't bring up, and that's one of the problems I think why men, especially, have struggled in AA with sex because they can't talk about it. Right. Whereas I think you can talk about alcohol or drug problems. Not, you know, again, it's not why you're there, but if you bring it into it, nobody's going to say anything. So there, there just seems like there's a lot more space. And I would say, I would agree, this is what I've found in other programs or fellowships, is that there is more space for the intersection of how these different parts of us all impact our life, right? Because if I'm taxed from my drug addiction, I really don't have the resources to work on the recovery from sex addiction, right? Like when I drink alcohol, I tend to act out more on my sex addiction. Like there's all these ways they intersect and it really does make it impossible. I don't want to say impossible. It makes it really, really difficult to treat when you can't talk about them all at the same time and how they, they interact and interoperate with each other. I would agree. I mean, I, and it, 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 you know, as I said, my ex story is that they, one led to the other and right. you know you you hear the hamster wheel and it keeps going faster and faster yeah. uh, that was my story do you happen to know off the top of your head when sexaholics anonymous came to be um the, there is a booklet uh roy w uh recognized he had a, a problem with sex addiction he had affairs and stuff he tried to talk about it at an aa meeting he did connect with people, and this was in the mid-70s. Okay. He finally started a few groups after an AA meeting. They would stay and Ooh. talk about their sex addiction Cool. in the yeah. late 70s. It really, the founding begins early, maybe 81, mm -hmm. where he actually starts to have some, you know, true meetings right, right so that's that time frame i, I there's not a specific date that i, I got gotcha. you right kind of like that 10 year year span of like the the mid early 70s on that's that's a really cool story actually yeah, about is, how it came to I be like I, I like that <laughs> yeah um, he, he was he's quite he he a lot of his story is in the white book and it, it's pretty fascinating i did find it funny though when you said uh when you said that lust was the word used in the first step, I was like, it would take an old AA guy to, to pull out an old word like that. Like, I don't think people use lust a lot anymore in modern vernacular. <laughs> Not really. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe maybe I just hang around my teenagers too much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They're definitely I, not using that. Uh, I'm glad you asked when it was founded because I was wondering about that too. So you got sober in uh, 2007? Correct. And so I was still drinking then. Um, but I remember sex sex addiction becoming like popular do you guys mm. remember this like it was in like pop culture more there was that uh tv show californication with david duchovny do you remember this uh, no. okay so he was a sex i was stuck in na it was like one disease one fellowship <laughs> you know? like that, that other shit's all bullshit like, <laughs> um i uh but i remember that being like like a hot topic because it was and then david duchovny was in that show and then it, he came out as a sexaholic do you remember that and then Tiger Woods got in a car accident. Oh, I I yeah, we all yeah. know about and Tiger. He blamed, yeah. you know, sex addiction as part of his problem. So I remember it being kind of trendy, which, uh, you know, that's a weird thing to say. Right. To mention, but yeah. like, actually, it's kind of a miracle that it got trendy because it brought it to the light for people to get help. I looked it up. SA was founded in 79. Um, it didn't. I don't know. I don't remember it being in pop culture. To, uh, well, uh, again, uh, Pat, to quote Pat Carnes, sex addiction is 50 years behind AA. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it and sadly, there are therapists today who don't think sex addiction is an addiction. I wondered about that. Like if people treat it like sometimes, oh, you can't get addicted to weed. You can't get addicted to sex. Yeah. You know, if people treat um, it that way. Yeah, it's because it, the argument is it's not officially listed in the DSM right. five. And I don't know if it's six is out yet or no, it's five R. It's the it's yeah. not second one. No. Nope. No, it's really tricky. There's a, a group of people uh, who subscribe to the idea that because processes in themselves aren't addictive even though they create the same exact thing in your brain that the drugs or the alcohol does that they can't be considered an addiction because it's 
a choice, I guess. I, I really can't figure out what their argument is, honestly. Are, yeah. but, are, is it a behavior addiction? Was, is sex addiction considered a behavior addiction? It, yeah, they call them process addictions. Process addiction is okay. um, the, the term. Yeah. yeah, they only recognize a couple, like trichotillomania, where you can't stop pulling hairs out of your head or your face. Um, it's one of the only few process addictions. What recognized. about food? Food is in okay. various ways, but not. A process addiction or a regular, I'd say regular. It's yeah. called, <laughs> that's fair to say, but eating disorders, I guess. Yeah. Disordered it's, it's, eating. It would be considered, I think, a process. I've always called it that. Yeah, it's it's tricky, but well, and I yeah. guess it falls into the category of like things that, and I guess sex you don't have to do, but there are some natural things that people do, you know, eating sex you know for reproduction things like that versus like when i do drugs that's very i'm going to use the word unnatural <laughs> like you know like that's not that's not a thing that just everybody does you know so well i mean i've been to a couple of workshops and stuff and i learned more about the brain than i probably ever wanted to <laughs> but they you know they put you know pictures of brains on drugs mm. and pictures on pornography and Nobody could see a difference. Yeah, nope. They look the same. Yeah, so the same it's all the same. Up. I mean, uh, and again, it's, you know, why, you know, that was the, un to, I mean, my alcohol, why I never really addressed it was I had an uncle who was a, what I call true alcoholic. I mean, he drank a quart to a half a gallon of vodka a day, mm -hmm. kept a half a gallon of vodka beside the bed for, you know, he was mm -hmm. older. You know, get up in the middle of the night to relieve himself. Chug, chug, chug. Mm. You know, that was, he was the alcoholic. My right. drinking, yeah. But I did it for the same reason, to get mm. out of my feelings, to be disconnected. And it took me a while in recovery to realize, yeah, I did it for the very same reason. I just didn't drink as much. But it allowed me to deny that I had a problem. It's kind of fascinating in a way because you'll have the experts debating about whether sex addiction is a real thing or really exists. And then you go to a, a some sort of meeting that talks about it or you go to an informational seminar like you're talking about. And then you learn that sex addiction is kind of harder to treat because, Billy, if you want to get high, you have to think about the idea that you want to get high and then make some moves to go get money, go get the stuff, whatever, this, that and the other there's a lot of time in there for you to catch yourself. Mm -hmm. Sex addiction, you catch somebody out of the corner of your eye getting off the bus, <laughs> and three minutes later, you done got high. You're your own drug dealer. Right. Like, you don't have to go anywhere to get that. So it's really, really tricky to try to interrupt that fast process, and it's so much harder to stop in some ways because of that. And yet we want to debate whether it's a real <laughs> thing or not. I mean, that's the, that's why relapse, unfortunately, in, sec, in SA and all of them, I'm sure, is that, yeah, I mean, if I want to drink, you know, I got to go make a decision, get in the car, go to the liquor store, walk, right. actually walk in, buy the bottle, put it on, you know, right. all those steps. I got at least a shot. Hey, you know, maybe this isn't the best thing or call somebody. Right. But with sex addiction, all I do is close my eyes and I can. <laughs> yeah. Or, as you said, you know, somebody, you know, walks in. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and it seems like our culture now is so much more like over sexualized, you know, with, you know, it's like celebrated as far as sexuality and I don't know, not that sexuality is bad, but there's the level that you can find what would have been deemed pornographic 20 years ago. Like now that's like commonplace on right. Instagram or, or whatever. Like that stuff is just so readily. Oh available. yeah. And that's the other part. I mean, you know, social media can, you know, and I, that's one area I, for my own recovery, I don't do, but, uh, absolutely. I mean, you got, you got, you know, pictures and stuff that's totally inappropriate and you know, it's everywhere. Yeah. And it, you're right. It's celebrated. I mean, look at 
people have commented, and I didn't watch it, the Super Bowl uh, halftime show. There were some moves that I've heard that were not exactly encouraging. Right. I think, Rick, maybe a a really important thing we want to cover before we have to run out of time here. Like, you didn't necessarily notice when you had this intervention you maybe had some thoughts here and there that sex addiction was a thing or possibly a a, you know a problem for you but not really what kind of ways or, or things might the average or typical person be looking for in their life that they're not seeing now that maybe is evidence that like they might want to talk to somebody about it you know, maybe it's not a problem. Maybe it is. But maybe it's like there's some certain warning signs that you didn't notice that you're aware of now that could help people recognize sooner that maybe they have some kind of sex addiction or disordered uh, interactions with sex. Um, good question. Um, for me, I guess the question would be, you know, not it's not necessarily how often, but how is it controlling your life? Mm. Um you know, as I said, people, I've heard people, and, and this is a question I've asked people, newcomers, um, you know, when you, when you view porn, oh yeah, I was only going to do it for 10 minutes and, you know, it was four hours later. Um, I'm only going to do it on Sundays or Saturdays or whatever day. All of a sudden I'm doing it three and four and five times a week. You know, is it, you know, is it, Trying to get the idea, is it controlling your life, that unmanageability part in step one, but to kind of awaken them. But for me, it's also sharing my own story mm. a little bit that, you know, oh, yeah. I, and, and being honest and saying, hey, I didn't think I had a problem until I heard that I did, because that's how we can carry the message is the most powerful part is telling our own story. Just realizing that that Sexaholics Anonymous has a little test. Uh, just to read a couple of these off that might be Oh, there's 20 questions, yeah. Yeah. Um, do you feel like sex or stimuli are controlling you? That's one you just mentioned. Have you tried to stop or limit what you're doing or felt that what you were doing was wrong? Um, do you resort to sex to escape, relieve anxiety, or because you can't cope? Do you feel guilt or remorse or depression afterwards? Has your pursuit of sex become more compulsive? Does it interfere with relations with your spouse? Uh, Do you have to resort to images or memories during sex? Um, You know, but yeah, I I think there's there's quite a few more. Mm -hmm. I will make sure to put that link up underneath our show notes. Um, I think for me, one of the things that was hard for me to admit or own or see, I guess, about myself at that point in time in my life was was that it was really calling the shots. Like I have this tendency, and I think this is a pretty human trait, that we we act and then we create the reasons why we acted later, even though we think we do it in the other order. And what I would do is I just kept having good justifications, good rationalizations for why I did these things that I wasn't so happy about later, right? Like, oh, well, I did it because of this, and it's just a shame it didn't work out better for me. And um, maybe maybe just that, that better self-reflection would have helped me or, or more ability to hear those around me who were pointing it out, like, dude, you're, you're a little off the hook there. Maybe you should look at yourself, right? Like, I don't know. And like you said, I think one of the struggles was that for me, sex addiction was such a hidden behavior. Like I wasn't really telling all my network or my sponsor about every little thing I did because like it wasn't their business in my mind. And it was awkward and weird. And and maybe in that, just one of the things we need to do is normalize the conversation around sex or, or, or sex addiction. Like just be able to talk about it more without the stigma would be nice. Uh, I think you're right. I mean, and but you know, I think also here, you know, being with a people who are willing to share. Mm. I mean, most people are not very open about it. Yeah. I mean, I try to be as much as I can. I get it. Um, you know, again, I don't go blab it to, <laughs> to big groups, but uh, there's certainly, if anybody, at, you know, they know I'm in recovery. You know, if they ask, I, I share. And, you know, and being able to do that kind of breaks down because it, it again, as I say, shame is such a, right. you know, and shame is, you know, hey, 
yes, I did I do bad things? Absolutely. But I am not a broken, you know, worthless human being. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, addicts and sex addicts probably get it in spades, <laughs> you know, that I am just worthless. Man, I am in such agreement because I every so often I will share about the fact that I've gone to sex addiction meetings or that I have, you know, some kind of history with that on the show, knowing that Mm -hmm. people out in the world are hearing that. Right. But a lot of times I don't. And it takes somebody like you come on and I'm like, all right, you know what? I'm here with Rick. Like, I don't have to be alone in this. And it is easier to say I did this. I went to these meetings. I sought help for this. So I think you're right. Like it's going to take me and you and other people speaking up about it and trying to lower that shame level. I mean, that's why I came is because mm-hmm. to carry the message Right. because it, and I know, you know, let's face it. We just went through the pandemic porn usage jumped 30 <laughs> to 40%. Right. Yeah. Now again, not everybody's going to be addicted. I get that. Hey, people drink and don't get addicted. Right. Uh, people use oxycodone and don't get addicted. But there is a percentage that got introduced to it that now can't, you know, it's controlling them. What would be the best way to find out more? Like, say you're you're in a 12-step program or you're not, and you happen to listen to this podcast, and you're like, oh, huh, I got some questions about that. I would imagine there's a, a good route to finding where the closest meeting is, but maybe even this this telephone line you said could help direct people in their um, questioning. Yes, there's uh, SA.org is the international group. Okay. And anybody in the Baltimore area, there's BaltimoreSA.org. Okay. Uh, that is our uh, Baltimore area webpage, and it has the hotline number in on it. You can either call or text in. Oh, cool. So you can even text and get answers, right? Yeah. That's good for my generation. Yeah, it, yeah. It's, it's, I've learned that I, it's a pretty good tool. And we we have started a newcomers meeting on Zoom. Nice. It's uh, on Thursday nights every other week. And we we can connect you to that. Uh, and that's it's we tr- do it a little bit like a meeting, but it's not totally not you know you can ask questions right and you know share a little bit of your story and and it's it's and it's a good experience and i it's something you know hey the pandemic had a lot of negative that encouraged us to go that way and i think it's a positive i just one more quick question because i think this deterred me from going to aa early on so i got in recovery very young and when i went to AA meetings, it was like, well, that's just a bunch of old people. Um, in SA meetings, are you seeing a younger demographic with all the porn issues and with the pandemic? Um, yes, I think the more recent members have been uh, younger. Um, now we do. You have to be eighteen. Yeah. Really? Uh, yeah. Huh? Yeah. Uh, because of the the nature, nature of, of it. Right. Yeah. It's, it's just, you know, it's something that's, you know, for safety purposes for everybody. Do you happen to know, is that for SAA and SLAA too? Because I don't ever remember I don't it. know. That's so fascinating. I mean, it makes sense. It's just yeah, it interesting. I never sense. thought yeah. about it. Well, it, it, yeah, because there's, I mean, you have Alateen and, you know, you have uh, a lot of, you know, other ones. But, yes, yeah, sex addiction. And that's one of the reasons. One of the media or, uh, workshops I went to, they talked about researching young kids. Mm-hmm. They can't really do Ooh. because mm-hmm. of, mm-hmm. you know, the nature yeah. of it and, right. you know, abuse. The legality. Yeah. yeah. Huh. Let's see how bad this is for kids. We'll just show them a whole bunch of images. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Measure their brains. Right. Um, Rick, I'm going to ask this, and I, it's not to be offensive. I'm just trying to explore this, and I think it makes it even more interesting because of your... I guess, background at this point in your life. It felt a little, I think, for me, uh, in hearing about Sexaholics Anonymous, with maybe the literature not being as welcoming to the LGBTQ community and with the kind of strict bottom line around this being your, your marital partner, it felt like there wouldn't be as much freedom in deciding your higher power. 
Like it kind of felt like those ideals came from sort of Christianity to some extent. And it didn't feel like it would be in my mind. I was like, oh, if I go there, they're not going to let me believe in something else or feel like something else is my higher power. Does that feel like the vibe in your experience with it? Or is that maybe a little off base? It's probably a little off base. I've actually had a sponsee who was an atheist. Awesome. So, um, you know, and he's struggling in that area some, right. but his parents were huge atheists. And, you know, and I said, hey, yeah, you know, if you want to say the the group mm-hmm. is your higher power, because it is a power greater than yourself. Absolutely. And then that's working for you. You know, for now, that's fine. Billy, Billy likes the one of, uh, or maybe I just keep giving this one to Billy, uh, of like, if I wanted to carry a couch to the second floor of my house, I can't do that. But like, maybe me and Billy could do that. And that's a power greater than me, right? Um, no, I, I, I like that we cleared that up or clarified that actually, because that was one of the hesitations I had about going. So hopefully that won't have to hold anybody else. No, I don't think, I, you know, is it, is it a, you know, Christian based? No. Okay. Um, I Roy, I I suspect had faith. Mm-hmm. I've you know never pursued looking. Uh, certainly, you know, in my own background, yes, my higher power is God. Right. I'm very open about it. You know, when I introduce myself, I'm grateful for another day of God's sobriety. Hmm. And they know, mm-hmm. and that's fine. Nobody says one word, uh, you know. But if somebody else isn't quite there yet, that's fine. You mentioned the virtual meeting for newcomers that you guys have, and I imagine there's probably some other virtual meetings going on. Are there also in-person meetings in the Baltimore area? And if so, about how many are there? Um, we have 20, 24 meetings. We have probably three or four, five, I think, uh, Zoom or phone meetings still. Mm-hmm. A couple were created because of the area we cover right um certain part of it they decided they liked that so the there's a in-person meeting that they that they had gone to afterwards they now have a zoom meeting so we added that uh the majority of meetings are in person there are, are probably three or four uh or five that that are hybrid that have a zoom or a phone component Mm -hmm. a couple of them are pretty good i mean they've mastered the technology right so it's it's uh you know again a blessing maybe from the pandemic we were able to use this tool right now that's awesome is there anything you were hoping to make sure you express today about the program or about who might want to think about considering going and learning more? Like, is there anything you were thinking you wanted to share that we haven't yeah, covered? I think we pretty much covered a lot of it. I mean, uh, again, it, I, w- I would want to stress that is, hey, I understand that, you know, it is that shame-based. I mean, when I connect with somebody, if they could want to come to one of my meetings, I'll actually wait outside of the meeting and walk them in. Mm-hmm. I recognize that, I mean, I've heard stories, you know, I showed up on the parking lot three times before I even had the courage to walk in. Right. I don't, you know, I want to try to make it as welcoming because, yeah, I've been there. I know it's scary, but I know the, you know, the life change. Right. As I said, I was, I was in my late fifties when I got in recovery. These last 15 years have been the best of my life. Marriage, you know, we've just celebrated actually 51 years Ooh, now. Congratulations. congratulations. Um, you know, that would not have happened if it hadn't been for recovery. I've been able to help people. I've been able to, you know, I, when I look in the mirror in, in the morning, I like who I see now. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of, I want to help people to get to that point. And I've been there. I look at my, you know, I remember the days when I look in the mirror, like who, or coming from a strip club, mm. literally on 95 saying, who was that idiot? You right. know, shoving dollar bills down mm. right, where they don't girls' belong. garters. <laughs> and as soon as you stop stuffing them, they wouldn't even talk with you. I mean, <laughs> right. you know, those crazy th- behaviors. 
and saying, oh, I'll never do it again, you know, mm. a week later. How can I get out of the house right. to do it again? Right. I, you know, and, you know, yeah, and, and I shame myself. So I want to try to, you know, hopefully people hear this is, hey, yeah, I get the shame. But there is a better way of life. Yeah. Thanks so much for coming in, Rick. This was really a, a nice conversation. And I hope people out there can have the safe space and time to sit back and just, you know, ask themselves some of these questions. And maybe if some of those questions really hit home, maybe go on SA's site or look underneath this podcast. I'll have the link right there. You can click on it and go check it out. And, and maybe you'll end up texting or calling Rick if you're in the Baltimore area and you're, and you're reaching out for help. Rick, again, thank you so much. And, uh, Thank you for just being this this person in the world and doing <laughs> no, this work. Thank man. you guys for having this opportunity. Awesome. Enjoy the rest of your day, okay? Okay. Bye. Did you like this episode? Share it with people you think might get something out of it. Check out the rest of our episodes at recoverysortof.com. Also, while you're there, you can find ways to link up with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Reddit, YouTube, anything. We're always looking for new ideas. Got an idea you want us to look into? Reach out to us.